Well, good morning. For those of you who are here with us on Wednesday night, or maybe you joined us from online, we spent some time uh, talking about Lent and, and Lenten season and tried to debunk some of the myths about what it is and what it, it, it isn't and whether or not we can participate in any way. But the bottom line is this. It is never a bad idea to focus in on who Jesus is, what he did, and what it means for us. And so we're going to be starting a series uh, of, of sermons over the next six weeks where we're building up to the most beautiful, amazing moment that this world has ever known. And it is when we realized that the tomb was empty and that Jesus had defeated death. He had overcome the biggest and greatest fear we could ever have. And so we're going to be spending some time focusing in on that. But, but this whole idea of, of Lent season is not just about the celebration of the empty tomb, but it's also a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so for many people, as they talk about this season leading up to Easter Sunday, it is a time to reflect. It is, it is a journey. It is an opportunity to reflect on our brokenness, on our sin, and on the amazing grace of Jesus. And that's why we're here this morning, right? All right, that's why we're here this morning, right? All right, I'm glad that's why you're here. That's why I'm here, because we get to talk about how our lives are completely changed. And I want to go back, and I want to talk about a, a gentleman that we know a lot about. And he had some ups and downs in his life. Uh, it's chronicled throughout Genesis. But I don't want to talk just about some of the things that happened as he got older. I want to talk about some of the just wild, crazy dysfunction that he was born into. So we have one slide. I want to put it up here. If, if some of you are familiar with what's called a genogram, that's just a fancy word basically for a family tree. Most family trees would basically be an upside down tree. If you imagine a normal tree, you have the trunk at the bottom and then going up you have the, your people who've gone on before you and before you. This is a genogram, a family tree of basically of the, the patriarchs, but we're going to focus in on one individual down here. His name is Joseph. And we know a lot about Joseph's life, but I just want to, just for a minute, I want to talk about his family. Because some of you are saying, Doug, you don't understand. I got a messed up family. And I just want to say, you don't hold a candle to Joseph. I mean, if, if we could just talk about just his, okay, so we have Joseph down here. We have above him, does anybody remember his, his father's name? Jacob, okay, and his grandfather would be Isaac, and his great-grandfather would be Abraham. We, just, just a little fun fact about Abraham. He's, he's getting older. God says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You're going to have many children. He's old. He looks at his wife. His wife says, I'm old. We're not going to have kids. And so she says, hey, why don't you take my maidservant and we can start a family through them. That was a terrible idea. And I always use this story as a reminder, guys, sometimes it's not healthy to do everything that your wife tells you. This is going to be one of those exceptions where, because she's going to give Hagar her, her servant to Abraham, her husband, 
And he's going to sleep with her, and she's going to get pregnant. And what's her very next thing? She goes to, to her husband, Sarah, and what does she say? What did you do? <laughs> that was, that's not a good way to start this whole great lineage. And so then it's going to go down to Isaac, and there is all sorts of dysfunction in that. I mean, even, even though we have this very beautiful scene in Genesis chapter 22 where he, he is a part of, of being willing to be sacrificed because that's what God asked uh, Abraham to do. He's carrying the wood as they go up the mountain. And yet, there's still lots of dysfunction in his family. And of course, what's going to happen after that? That's going to get passed on. Because then we have Jacob. And Jacob found new ways to put the fun in dysfunction. So, and it's not all his fault. He meets a guy named Laban. Well, he meets his daughter first and says, oh man, she's beautiful, right? Her name is Rachel. And Rachel just happens to have an older sister. Her name is Leah. And, and how she is described in the Bible, she has weak eyes. And we, we don't know exactly what that means. We know that Jacob loved Rachel. He worked seven years to get her. And then there was, there was a bride swap that happened the night of the wedding. Laban sends in uh, his oldest daughter, Leah. Jacob wakes up the next morning. And he goes to Laban and says, what have you done? I worked seven years for your daughter, Rachel. He says, well, you know what? I forgot to tell you, it's our custom that we have to marry off our oldest one first. But hey, I tell you what, spend the rest of the week with her, and then I'll let you work seven more years so that you can have the daughter that I promised you before. Well, and this is where it gets crazy on this whole family tree, because he's ultimately, Jacob is going to be um, married to Rachel and Leah. He loves Rachel more. God knows this. So God allows Leah to have all these children. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. And Rachel cannot stand this. She's so upset. So she says, hey, I got this great idea. Why don't you take my servant, Bilhah. Bilhah is going to have a couple of more kids. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, and Naphtali. And then Leah's going to jump on board and said, hey, take my uh, maidservant. And from that, you're going to get Gad and Asher. And then we have this really awkward scene where um, Rachel storms in and says to her husband, give me a son or I'll die. And Jacob's like, I, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, and ultimately, Lee is going to have two more children. Finally, we get Joseph. Joseph is going to be born. This is kind of who we're centering around. Do you know what Joseph really means? Do you know what the name Joseph means? Get this. I don't know if this would give you a complex or not. The name Joseph basically means, I want another one. Can you imagine that? That is base. His name is, give me another one. That's what she wants. Okay, you know, I mean, Rachel, she's struggling, she has some issues, but can you imagine how this forms Joseph's life? And so Joseph is the favorite of Rachel. Okay, ultimately Jacob is going to have 13 children, but at this point he's going to have 10, then he's going to have a, a daughter as well. Joseph is going to be born, Joseph is, is going to have uh, 11 other siblings before Benjamin's born. And he's the favorite of the favorite wife. 
And I, I don't know how to I don't know how you do this in a genogram, but but what is it like growing up that your stepmom is also your aunt? Like, don't you think there's some awkward things that happen at the dinner table? And Leah and Rachel, they hate each other, they despise each other, and it just leads to all sorts of drama, not the least of which is that all the brothers hate Joseph. Ultimately, Benjamin's going to die, and this is a part of Joseph, I mean, Benjamin is going to be born, but his name is not Benjamin. His name is what? Ben-Oni. His, his mother, Joseph's mother, is going to die during childbirth. She, she births the, her son, she says, I want to name him Ben-Oni, which means son of my suffering. Dad grabs the kid and says, nope, he's Benjamin. He's son of my right hand. And then mom dies. Joseph has no mother now. She's passed away. He's living with a dad who has, who has kids with three other women who are still alive. And all of those children hate Joseph. Right? And he doesn't help. He piles on because he's going to start telling these stories about how he had these dreams and how his whole family's going to bow down to him. And once again, sometimes it's better not to say everything that you know. If you're having like, like that, just what it makes everybody uncomfortable, including Jacob. And the brothers are going to take this to heart and they want to kill him. And Reuben says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in a well. So he's in a well. Reuben's going to come back and save him because he knows he can't go home to dad without his favorite son there. And so while Reuben is out, they're sitting around and Judah has this great idea. He says, let's not kill him. That would be terrible. Like, we shouldn't do that. Let's just sell him as a slave. Does anybody not feel a little uncomfortable about that? Like, hey, like they actually doing their brother a solid by selling him into slavery rather than killing him. So they end up sending him off into to slavery, to Egypt. And then and it all culminates in the moment when the famine has happened. The brothers are going to go to, to Egypt to get food. And Joseph's going to recognize him. And I love this, this beautiful story of forgiveness, right? Where, where he, he says, I'm, I'm your brother. You know, go get your dad. Bring him here. You guys are all going to live with me. And so we got to fast forward just a few more years. Okay. This is the dysfunction that he's coming from. So it makes perfect sense why this is about to happen. Finally, Jacob and his family, they're all in Egypt. Joseph has brought them there and Jacob dies. And you would think that everything is going to go along just as normal, but then something really weird happens. The brothers notice that Jacob is dead. They're like, dad is dead. Guess what? Joseph is now going to exact the revenge. He wanted to the whole time, but he couldn't do it because he didn't want to upset dad. So then it seems like we don't know for sure, but it seems to me like they completely make up this crazy story. Okay, they send a message to Joseph, and the message was this, by the way, before dad died, he told us to tell a messenger to tell you that, like, you need to forgive your brothers. That's the most crazy story. Joseph hears that story, he hears the messenger saying, don't be mad at your brother. He starts weeping, and the brothers rush in. And then we have this most beautiful line from Genesis 
chapter 50, verse 22. It's the last chapter in Genesis. Uh, I want to read this to you. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what now is being done, the saving of many lives. Now, the American Standard Version reads a little differently. And it, he says here, it, it translates, translates it as, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, that is not to suggest that, that God was in charge of that evil, that he planned out that evil It also didn't mean that God even stopped the evil. He allowed it. But but God used the evil for a larger purpose, even when no one knew what God was up to. So let's fast forward an entire testament, several books, and 16 centuries later. And let's go to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be in the upper room. I'm going to read the first 13 verses, so I want you to follow along with me here. This is uh, Luke chapter 22. Now listen, there's going to be a word you're going to hear over and over again. I want you to think about that word. See if you can pick out what you're going to hear over and over again. Luke is being a little redundant, but it's for a reason. He says, now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed how they might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when when no crowd was present. Okay, well, here we go. My print off cut off part of it. I'm getting old and I have big print, so I printed it off. And somehow I cut off part of it. And so now we're going to try to read small print. Okay, that was that got me through verse 6. Wow, my arms are not long enough. Then the day came of unleavened bread. Oh, I just put it backwards. Then the day came on unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go make preparations for us to eat at the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asked, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, and so they prepared the Passover. Anybody catch what word we heard five different times? The Passover. Okay, this is not an accident. Luke wants to go out of his way to say the Passover, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover. Over. Why is this such a big deal? Why is the Passover such a big deal? Why does Luke want to point this out, that that's the meal that they're about to have? What is the Passover about? 
The Passover is when God was leading His people, these people, out of Egypt. Remember, where were they living? Where, where was Joseph living? They were in the promised land. He was sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He pulls his family out of the promised land to Egypt. And now God is going to send them back to the place that He promised that they had been there already, but they had left. But the Passover is really about when someone intended something for evil and God turned it into something good. We have to remember what was going on around the time of the Passover. This was not like the Israelites... You know, they were in a country that was being occupied by their enemies. They were slaves in the land of their enemies. They served a, a Pharaoh who was at, at best narcissistic. But let's not forget that it was during that time, the time of Moses, that the Pharaoh did what? commanded that all the baby Hebrew boys, newborn crying babies, to be torn away from their mothers and killed in front of them. This is the kind of evil and sickness that is in the world. And God says, I'm taking my people out of that. This is evil. I'm going to make something good out of it. I'm going to take them out of this. I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to redeem them. Even in the midst of tragedy. And that is exactly the picture that Jesus is painting as we read Luke 22. He is about to offer the world new deliverance from a greater evil than even Pharaoh could have imagined. And he would all do this by offering to be the Passover lamb. He is the one who says, I am the one who will be the sacrifice. Remember, evil is all around Jesus. Judas has just taking a, taken a small bribe to betray someone who he has followed for years. Peter, who promises that he will die for Jesus, is about to lie and lie and lie and run away. The rest of the twelve, they are going to run. Some of them run away as their, their clothes are being ripped off of them. They're running away trying to get as far and fast away from Jesus as they can. The priests are making up all these crazy allegations, these lies about what Jesus did and who he said he was. The soldiers are beating Jesus. They're placing a crown of thorns on his head and saying, prophesy who hit you. The leaders are passing Jesus off. They're making sport of him. They're mocking him. There's pretending that they have some power that they can release him if they want to. The criminals on either side of Jesus are there. One of them is hurling insults at him. The mob that chooses to have Jesus crucified as they scream out, Crucify Him! 
Evil is all around. Even the passerbyers that don't even know this man, they see him on the cross. And they laugh at him and they spit on him. And they read the sign that says King of the Jews and they say, he's no king. And the priests look by and say, hey, you really are the Son of God? If you are, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. Evil is everywhere. The cross is a culmination of sin and sickness and death and evil. And what Judas meant for evil when he betrayed him. And what Peter meant for evil when he ran away. And the chief priests, what they meant for evil when they convicted him. And the soldiers, what they meant for evil when they nailed the nails through Jesus' hand. And the passerbyers that spit on him and mocked him. All that was meant for evil, God used for good. The story of Jesus on the cross is a story of how evil could not be overcome by good. The good that was done by Jesus and His Father in heaven. And what I love about this passage that we just read, and what I want to close on is this thought, is that even in the midst of all this evil, you know what Jesus was? He was ready. There's another thought that we see throughout Luke 22, 1-13. Over and over again, it's Jesus is prepared make preparations get ready for this i'm ready for this i know what's coming i know that the evil is coming and it can't overcome me i will defeat it the evil in that time was no greater than the evil that we face in our lives today jesus was prepared then and he is prepared now He is not surprised by the sin of the world, by the evil of the governments, or even by the sin in your own life. We can pick up the newspaper and read about the terrible things that are happening across on the other side of the world. That is evil, but God intends good to come out of it, and He's prepared for good things to come out of it. There is evil that is taking place in our own county, in our own city, in our own neighborhoods. And God is not surprised by it, and He can make good come from it. He says, don't be overwhelmed, I have overcome the world. Guys, it's terrible what's going on over in Russia and Ukraine. He did not say, I have overcome the tri-state area. He did not say, I can handle your problems. He says, I have overcome the world. And it all happens when Jesus dies on that cross and He's raised to life again. And that's what we're getting to 
over the course of these next six weeks. My prayer is that you will be thinking about, even in midst of all the pain and all the sorrow and the brokenness that you're facing and the fears that you have and the anxiety, just know, Jesus, he's prepared. And he has overcome all of it. And he has promised you life and life life to the fullest and that's because we serve a god of an empty tomb who's preparing a place for us and so this morning i want to encourage you to focus in on a god who helps you overcome the evil the sin the hurt in your life and he gives you hope and happiness and a future with Him. May we celebrate a God who is alive. I want to ask you to join me as we celebrate, as we stand and sing.